Hello, everybody, and welcome to Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. I hope you guys are doing okay. Thanks for joining in. I hope you stick around, subscribe, all of that. So, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about a new approach to obesity and binge eating disorder, those two things together. But I wanted to explain why we're doing this. So I read your emails and comments. Uh, I have a group, a Facebook group called the Blooming Wellness Pod, and we have some great discussions in there. So far, everybody's been respectful, not too conspiratorial or anything like that. Um, I try to monitor it as best I can, and people seem to get, as, get along as best they can online, which is a miracle that they get along as well as they do. But there's been a lot of chatter about how public health people are not talking about obesity. And the reason this came up is because, as we've learned during the course of this infectious disease pandemic, COVID, obesity is a risk factor for serious COVID and mortality. So ideally, in an ideal world, we would have liked to have seen our obesity rates decline during the pandemic, but that didn't happen. New data shows that our obesity rates in both adults and kids actually went up, uh, which is alarming and, you know, maybe somewhat ironic because we were focusing a lot on obesity being a risk factor for COVID. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, what are we doing wrong here? Because obesity, which, by the way, was already labeled an epidemic by the CDC in the late 1990s. So how did our obesity problem, the obesity epidemic get worse during an infectious disease pandemic made worse by the obesity epidemic? Huh? Well, okay, we can dive into that and maybe we can do that at a later time, but you know, some reasons could just be people were at home more. There were lockdowns, there were shutdowns, people were stuck at home, uh, they were eating and not moving as much. They weren't going to the gym. They weren't walking around outside. Um, schools, schools closed. Kids were not playing sports. Some kids were probably not getting access to nutritious lunches. A lot of kids depend on schools for that. There was just a study that came out showing, I believe that the screen time doubled during the pandemic for children. So they were sitting in front of the screen more. And I always tell people, you know, get away from the screen, close it, get out there and move more. Um, so that probably didn't help. And also, you know, people lost jobs and they didn't have as much money to spend on food and they probably maybe bought cheaper food, right? And cheaper food tends to be more unhealthy and processed. So there's a lot of reasons why our obesity epidemic got worse during the pandemic, but it's not a good thing. And we're obviously not going in the right direction, but I did listen to you guys and I do want to talk about it more on this podcast. So it's one of my topics for 2022 to focus on, <laughs> along with some other things, and I'll get to those in different podcasts. I just did a podcast with a researcher who studied intermittent fasting, and we talked about whether he thought that was a viable approach to obesity. So you can listen to that podcast. It's already posted. My guest today is Dr. Trina Eichness. She is an associate professor at the Department of Neuroscience and Behavioral Medicine 
at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. So, and just so you guys know, I wanted to try to bring on more people from other countries to try to get a more global perspective. You know, what's going on in all these different countries, not just in the US, but Dr. Eichness has been working as a clinician and researcher for the last 20 years, focusing on eating disorders and obesity, body image, stigma. So I recently read an article that she wrote about her new approach to obesity and binge eating disorder. Uh, it was a feasibility study. So I wanted to talk to her about that because I thought it was a different, unique approach. Uh, the intervention is called People Need People. So she's going to talk about that intervention, the elements of that intervention, why she included them, um, the link between obesity and binge eating disorder, how prevalent is it, the link between obesity and shame and obesity and binge eating disorder and attachment style. Attachment style, which she's going to get into more in the podcast because I was very interested in that, but that really has to do with how we form relationships with our caregivers or our parents and, you know, other people throughout our life. So, and then we're going to talk about what the next steps are for this intervention because we need to talk about these types of things because we have a problem and we need to fix it. So that said, let's connect to Dr. Eichness in Norway. Okay, guys, today on the line from Norway, we have Dr. Trina Eichness, who did a study that I read, and this is how I reached out to her. I read a study that was recently published in Frontiers. I believe, yes. the journal. And it was a really interesting study because it was basically dealing with how to approach uh, obesity and binge eating disorder. And I'm going to let her explain it. I, I have some questions uh, that I want her to dive into in more detail. But first, Trina, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little more about you, what you do, and how you got interested in obesity research? Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Trina, yes, and I am um, uh, currently working as an associate professor at a university in Norway, NTNU. And uh, my research areas are really um, interdisciplinary because I work with prevention and treatment of eating disorders and also prevention and treatment of uh, obesity so they're kind of overlapping so that's why uh, hence the interest in obesity because I worked in a clinic for severe eating disorders for many many years and it was uh, very striking to see how many higher weight patients did not receive treatment even though when we uh, received patients with higher weights, we saw that they were just as ill, just as, uh, as suffering as other patients with anorexia and bulimia. So uh, my interest came from advocacy. I think I, I just thought that these patients deserved more treatment and at least in Norway, the research was really not sufficient to, to add to the needs of the patients. Okay. And, and that's something that I, a, a question I wrote down was about that, because uh, you, you write about that in your paper, the, 
the shame and the stigma and how that keeps people from getting treatment, which is really important. So the title of your study, a group intervention for individuals with obesity and comorb comorbid BED or binge eating disorder. I thought, could we start out by you talking a little more about binge eating disorder? How common is it with people who have obesity and also get into a little bit of the causes? Mm -hmm. So binge eating disorder is a distinct diagnosis, even though uh, in Norway, we don't recognize it as a, a distinct eating disorder because it's not covered by the uh, diagnostic manual uh, ICD-10 uh, as it is in uh, the US uh, with DSM. Um, binge eating disorder is uh, have similar causes and similar etiology uh, to anorexia and bulimia, but it's just not commonly known as an eating disorder. Uh, people with binge eating disorder often have experiences with uh, anorexia or bulimia in their past medical history. Uh, the uh, uh, risk factors for uh, binge eating disorder are very similar to other uh, diagnoses such as anorexia and bulimia. And it's a very strong interplay between biological and social and environmental causes. For instance, having been bullied, having social uh, problems in your childhood, or having uh, had, or having overweight as a child. So um, a lot of uh, the common myths are that binge eating disorder is very different from other eating disorders, but it's uh, very similar in terms of development and maintenance. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, full disclosure, I had bulimia for years, so I can totally oh, I'm sorry. relate to, uh, you know, binge eating disorder. I, I don't, yeah. it's sort it's very similar. It's just in one you, you purge, you know, in, in the other, yeah. you, you, you don't. Um, but um, some of the stuff I, in your paper, I really related to like the uh, um, alexithymia, like the, you know, the inability to express your feelings and your emotions. That was a big one for me. Yeah, it's a, that was a very um, big part of the development of the intervention. So when we designed it, we had in mind that a lot of the patients that we saw in the clinic were unable to both define what was going on uh, internally. Mm -hmm. Also, they were uh, unable to express their needs uh, because, you know, they never had any emotional language for their feelings. Yes. So we, we were just thinking we can't design uh, an intervention that um, doesn't cover Alexithymia because uh, I think a lot of patients do suffer from that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so much to do with your environment. Um, you know, I, it, yeah. Emotions were like, kind of, you didn't really show your emotions growing in my house growing up, you know, I wanted to be tough. Then I went to a military academy where like showing emotions was a weakness. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that goes, <laughs> that goes yeah. somewhere. I mean, it was all in the stars. I was like, if you look back, it's like, well, yeah, that's why she was that way. Um, but eating disorders. You probably did well. You probably did well in that environment. 100%. You are exactly yeah. right. And then when I got out of that environment, I, that's when I really started to crumble and had a breakdown, um, 
you know, and it was a very embarrassing breakdown in many ways, but it also was um, the starting point for me to, to figure out what I needed to do to recover. Um, and I'm lucky because some people, you know, they don't get that second chance, but I really feel no. like I had a second chance, but it's so, I'm so happy you said Great that because yeah, yeah, people in that environment do do really well when they don't um, identify or express their emotions. So it's, it, it doesn't, it's not a problem. It's actually a strength in many ways to get you through certain things. I think, uh, yeah, because a lot of the patients we see, uh, they have adapted to their environments very well, because, yeah. you know, if you, you can't uh, uh, have this notion that I'm going to feel uh, upset and sad and expect someone to comfort you if you live in an environment that, that when there's no one there to comfort you. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's, and it really makes a huge difference. Um mm-hmm. The name of your intervention, people need people. I, I really like mm-hmm. that. Um, and Thank I wanna, you. Yeah. And you, you, one of the sentences that struck me in, in your paper was that um, the framework for this, it, it targets how binge eating disorder links to attachment functioning. Um, attachment. What, what is that? What is the link? between and, and eating, maybe even eating disorders in general, but what is that, that link between eating disorders and attachment? And why is it so important in your opinion that we address it? Well, when we designed the um, intervention, we, uh, we both me and my co-author, Shesh de Hognes, but we were really um, uh, framed in that early development, uh, creating either a a safe um, and secure um, relationship with food and your body uh, and uh, or the opposite when we see patients, uh, patients that have grown up insecurely and having uh, to relate to binge eating, purging or um, under eating to cope with the uh, uh, uns- insecure bonds. And we see a lot of patients struggling to understand themselves because they, they, they don't understand why they have such a difficult relationship with food and weight and body image. So um, uh, when we dive into the literature, we see that uh, attachment insecurity has really, really strong relationships with eating disorders in all types of uh, entities, so both for anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, having uh, insecure attachment to your caregivers is really uh, causal to development of eating disorders. And also we saw that uh, patients that have uh, higher weights really don't understand how their stress system develops during childhood and adolescence. And we see our theoretical framework is that children who grow up with um, uh, insecure attachments, they have this really high stress uh, systems in their body. So they're, um, they are uh, dealing with stress in different ways than secure children. And also, you know, the progressive escalation of weight is sometimes, and a lot of times uh, associated with a lot of stress, internal stress or external stress. So internal stress can be really low self-esteem, 
poor body image, self-hatred and external can be bullying, uh, extreme weight stigma or um, poverty or poor socioeconomic status. And when you say insecure bonds or an insecure attachment, does what does that mean in kind of basic terms? It means that you feel like the your caregiver or even maybe your significant other is not going to be there or you can't rely on them? Just to say it in layman's terms, I think all humans, you know, we're born with this drive to be attached to a, a caregiver. So the emotional bonds that we form to our caregivers, be it your mother or father or your grandparents, those who, um, you know, are the closest to you, uh, forms uh, uh, the child's development in, in myriads of ways. And, and so we have different attachment styles, but basically we think in this intervention that insecure attachment has, uh, um, is a driver of the binge eating um, leading to high weight. And that's, is that why you guys named it People Need People? Yeah. yeah, we named it People Need People because uh, it goes both ways. You know, as a child and in your adolescence, you really need secure people around you. When you're in high school, you need your close friends that you can depend on. And in adulthood, we also need people uh, giving us security and strong emotional bonds. And especially for the treatment, uh, we emphasize that uh, the patients need caregiver uh, support. So we really um, make the patients uh, involve um, uh, significant others to understand how the weight stigma or the, or the uh, childhood memories form their eating styles. Uh, so um, we have patients that said that, well, I kind of want this to be my eating disorder project. I don't want to share it with anyone else. I don't want to burden anyone else. I want to do this on my own. And we know from both research and clinic, it's very hard to, you know, to combat an eating disorder alone. Oh, 100%. And in fact, yeah. I, mean, I could just from, uh, I can speak from my experience of, from having bulimia, like being alone was what like, I always wanted to try to be alone because I had, it was yeah. almost like an addiction. You know, I, I planned yeah. my binges and purges. And then I, I um, in my, well, I wrote a book when the main character had bulimia. It was based off of my experience, um, mm -hmm. based on a true story. Cause I, and I wrote it to kind of figure out what happened to me, right. You know, no one mm -hmm. really expected me to have this kind of great epic breakdown. Um, but after each binge and purge, it was, I, I, I said it was like cleaning up a crime scene. That's what it yeah. felt like. And That's so a very good illustration, you yeah, know, it, it's just, very, yeah. I mean, there was a cleaner. Yeah. I mean, I would do things you, and I'm sure, you know, because you work in the field, but people do things you never think you would do, like, you know, just mm -hmm. to hide that you had this problem and to hide it from others. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the depths of that was where, uh, but you do, you do need people to help you through it. Um, and I think interesting too, that the whole point about attachment, you do have to work on that because otherwise the other types of relationships that you might look for and these, and it's sort of similar, like you look for yeah. things that you're familiar with, even though they might yeah. not be healthier for you. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, just cause, Oh, I, I recognize that. That's what, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, 
Tough. Yeah, I just want to add to that. It's very, um, I like the way you're framing it because um, a lot of the patients we're seeing, uh, they describe these really high levels of stress um, following social interactions. You know, social yeah. relationships are very hard yeah. uh, from, from a lot of people with eating disorders. So uh, combating the, the complex, the complexity and the difficulties with social relationships, you know, we hope that it will reduce the stress and also reduce the, the urge to binge. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people have difficult family, family dynamics, mm -hmm. difficulties of setting boundaries at home or at work. So yes. Yes. Be, they really need to work on, you know, people, their yeah. people skills. Yeah. And it's a lifelong thing too. I mean, the stuff I have it to is. do, I, I, you know, it's, it's a lifelong thing. Um, cause for me, like, um, and, and I want to ask you about this cause I, I found it interesting, um, when you talk about the stress response and yeah. why people choose to binge and then maybe why some people choose to binge and purge. Um, what does that do something for you? Because in my experience, I felt like it was an addiction where like I would do that and I would feel better after I binged and purged for a short amount of time. And then, you know, I didn't, you know, then I felt really mm -hmm. bad and, um, but it was a cycle. And I said, to, I always ask myself, like, what is this doing to my brain? Like, why am I mm -hmm. engaging in this instead of doing something else to handle the stress I'm feeling? I think it's, uh, it's a very interesting topic and feel what's driving behaviors yeah, and, and really what's driving dysfunctional behaviors that has a function in your life because people wouldn't do, um, people wouldn't purge or binge if it didn't suit their needs in one way or another because our brain really helps us to survive, I think. And I think purging or binging helps us to relieve stress that we are unconsciously unaware of yeah in in various ways so i think uh although people do experience a lot of shame and guilt after binging or purging i think a lot of people uh they find comfort in knowing that you can relieve stress uh, yes. You know, once you get home right away and yes. also, yeah, right away, you know, that, you know, I'm going to have a way out. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think a lot of people carry tremendous amount of shame mm. and a lot of patients describe how shame can be kind of, uh, numbed with the binge, you know, you kind of have this way out and yes. just, just free time yes. of hating Definitely. yourself. Yeah. yeah. Shame and shame works in different ways. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, there's the shame of maybe you're ashamed of your body or how you look and you don't want to get treatment or you've experienced, uh, people who treated you nasty, you know, mean because mm -hmm. you, they, oh, they blame you for your weight. And we know that that's mm -hmm. what discourages some people, but then there's also the shame of just having this problem, like this eating disorder problem, and then not wanting to be, to, to go see a doctor. In my case, mm. I remember the first time I was in the therapist waiting room and I like wanted mm -hmm. to put like my hoodie on and I wanted yeah. to, I was looking in the parking lot, like, are there any cars here that, that I know, you know, yeah. 
Cause that's, cause it's like, yeah. you view it as a weakness. And, yeah. um, and that's how I was, you know, kind of brought up and then, you know, military academy. And, um, and so it's, it's really interesting how shame, um, plays into this. Uh, is that your experience kind of like there's different yeah. aspects of shame? A hundred, a hundred percent. And I think a lot of people really don't get the concept of shame. I think, you know, we use shame in our everyday speech, but the patients we see, they are so shameful and so um, embarrassed. And so even just walking through the city, some of them just say that I feel wrong. You know, people Mm. can look at me and say that, or, you know, they just, I don't belong here. I'm not, you know, the the unworthiness and the the sense of not belonging to the community and so it's just uh, it's not you know some people think that people with eating eating disorders have you know they are ashamed of their bodies but um uh in many of the cases they're ashamed of their existence you know of Mm -hmm. themselves yeah yeah that's true and i think uh not maybe knowing yourself or who you are and kind of like adapting to false identities that are assigned to you that was a big thing in my case oh yeah oh yeah yeah so uh, part of the program is also uh going through you know what are the what are my identities what's driving the behaviors because all research show that shame is always most of the time driven by the identities we want so if you know I want to be a perfect mother I want to be yeah. perfect athlete or a scholar and so much behavior has to be in place to meet those identities right and I think too shame and not wanting to be what society may want you yes to be. yeah yeah true yeah uh, that, that was definitely my experience yeah and just figuring that out um, and having the courage to say that it's really interesting. It's just so healing and you don't even, you know, you don't think of it, but you have to, you have to like your program does, you have to create that awareness of how all of these things. Yeah. Are, I think are that's true. You know, it's, it's a lot, lots of healing in searching for your identity. Yes. Yes. 100%. Um, and, and, and the uncertainties of that, because there's a lot of uncertainty. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> we, we walk through life looking for the right identity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll be my, maybe that'll be my epitaph. Who am I? No. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I figured out um, a lot of it, but it is a battle and it is tough. And I relate to anybody out there who is struggling with that. Let's get into the specifics of um, your intervention. Um, mm-hmm. It was, uh, I, I read, well, so it was a feasibility study. And for mm-hmm. folks who don't, may not know what that is, um, just to see if it works, if it's safe. Um, and then maybe if you can then take it, you know, it's small, like a small pilot study, and then hopefully yeah. you can do a larger study, which it looked like it, it did turn out really well. Um, mm-hmm. But why don't you go ahead and talk about the, um, what the intervention was, how long it was, um, and mm-hmm. you know, the specific program. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that in Norway, uh, people with uh, who seeks weight uh, treatment or obesity treatment uh, are often not given access to eating disorder treatment. So uh, the treatment study was set up because a lot of patients uh, with uh, severe obesity did not 
um, have access to assessment for eating disorder or treatment. Actually, you know, no one gave it. So that was the starting point. So we, we kind of wanted to see, is it feasible to do a treatment covering two different hospitals and two different medical specialties? Because psychiatry and, and, and the obesity uh, clinic is not in the same world uh, per se. So uh, we started recruitment of uh, people who sought treatment for obesity and also who screened positive for binge eating symptoms. And if they did, they um, were referred to my bed team and they were given um, a thorough assessment of a mental health illness and a thorough examination of binge eating disorder and, and eating disorder history. Uh, if they, um, uh, if they uh, were found to have a binge eating disorder, they were given the opportunity to, to um, uh, participate in a 30 hour treatment. Uh, so that's 10, um, 10, 10 sessions uh, and each session is three hours containing psychoeducation, very interactive psychoeducation uh, uh, a meal and uh, a lot of practical awareness. Uh, um, what do you call them? Chores. Chores. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, one of the uh, modules were a caregiver module where we invite the caregivers, friends, and loved ones of the patient to give them a common language and common myths and uh, ways to work through you know the the uh, recovery because of course no one is healed after 10 weeks most people aren't right 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 yeah and so we did um uh, you know the most interesting finding is that uh, we had no dropouts people i saw that yeah, uh, you know that was really cool because uh, working with the interventions in both obesity and eating disorders, we we lose a lot of people. Right, right. During interventions, uh, more than fifty percent in a lot of interventions. Right. So, getting people to show up uh, uh, when you know, you know, there's a lot of difficult and complex topics we go through during those thirty hours your childhood, your family dynamic, your personal struggles. So um, that's a very good finding. Even though it's uh, just 10 weeks, I find it uh, interesting that no one quits. I, I did too. When I read that, I was yeah. surprised. I was like, what? wow, yeah. not, one, not one dropout? Yeah. <laughs> and even now we've, uh, you know, we collected more data. We have, uh, you know, we have, um, um, uh, we have finished the intervention for 80 people and we, until now we have just one dropout. Wow. So this is an ongoing, I didn't realize it was an ongoing. Yeah. We're still okay. doing, um, uh, which we're still seeing patients, recruiting patients so we can have larger numbers to see, predict who's doing, you know, who's receiving the intervention well and, uh, and not so well. Now, um, and you mentioned that you share a meal during this intervention. So is there a, a social component to this as well? Um, yeah, social yes, very well spotted. It's a lot. We were discussing when we were designing the intervention, should we add a meal or not? 
uh, and talking to patients, a lot of patient, patients have difficulties eating with other people, uh, the intrusive negative thoughts eating with them. Uh, a lot of them do not have uh, a steady meal frequency. So even just getting them to eat uh, a lunch meal uh, together and also removing a lot of guilt. You know, we say that you can eat uh, whatever you want. We're not going to shame you for not eating and drinking, you know, the correct meal. So it was a, it was, it's a, it's both a component and also a biological intervention to add the meal into uh, the treatment. Yeah, no, I found that very interesting because that can be like mm-hmm. really touch or, it's a touchy subject for a lot of people who have, have eating yeah, disorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, now, so what you did this intervention, nobody dropped out, which is amazing. Um, what were there other findings that you were looking for um, in terms of quality, reduction in um, binge eating episodes, that kind of thing? Yeah, as it was a feasibility study, it was important for us to see that patients uh, did not become more ill during the intervention. You know, a lot of <clears throat> uh, worries in the field is, well, if you open up the discussion and reflections for all of these difficult topics, will you not make the person more unstable, more ill and more destabilized? And luckily we saw a reduction of uh, binge eating episodes uh, during the intervention. So they didn't, in- didn't increase um, binge eating. And also we saw uh, that patients reported to have a better social life after the intervention, which is really good because that's what we're aiming for, that people can use their community and their people more and move out of their isolation. And people reported uh, feeling better emotionally when it comes to anxiety, worry, etc. And they also reported to, uh, to have better health uh, using this functional scale of uh, quality of life. And I noticed, and in, in was this uh, obviously, obviously a deliberate decision? You kept out uh, measurements of weight and calories that wasn't part of it. Yeah, yeah, because in my opinion, people uh, that have binge eating disorders, they do not need another lecture about, um, about you know, vegetables, Eat your vegetables. and calories. <laughs> you yeah. know, one of my patients said, you know, I've spent near, what did she say? She said, I've spent $30,000 on diets in mm-hmm. my life, you know, and clearly it's not working. And most of my patients, you know, they're, you know, they're Olympic champions when it comes to dieting. They really know what to eat. <laughs> That's not the, the right. problem. Right, right. That's such a great point. So, uh, uh, yeah, so we're, <laughs> you know, our treatment is a highly um, specialized treatment looking at the drivers and the maintaining factors. And I don't think that knowledge about um, nutrition or physical activity belongs in that section. Right, right. Would be overkill. They know. Um, yeah. 
but if the interview um, actually it's just anecdotal and we haven't um analyzed the data yet but it seems like a lot of people are able to um eat better and be more physically active uh when they um when they get all of the stressors reduced in their lives right so i i think you know what if we deal with all the things that are maintaining and driving the eating disorder then they can you know um uh take more charge of the health behaviors like sleep nutrition right and and joyful exercise joyful exercise oh i love how you said that i'm, I'm huge on joyful movement on my youtube channel yeah I yeah have, i have yeah. all these crazy workouts i do but they're all like fun because if it's not yeah. fun and if you're not playing like why you don't you're not going to want to do it no no i'm um, sorry my dog just like ran across her my um there he is drinking his water <laughs> he makes his presence known at every podcast it's <laughs> my dog. My I think dog I think all podcasts or everyone should have a dog. Oh my gosh, he's funny. Sometimes he just he appears out of nowhere, and you know, and it'll be like a it'll be a somber moment in a podcast, and then Barnaby comes in with his toy, and I'm like, really, buddy? Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's, there's only so much we could do like, to connect with all the people you know all around the globe. You want it to be interesting. Uh, and you know, I, we're all you know. we're all at home, a loud apartment. Um, so, but it's, it's cool that we can connect this way. I mean, let's, I, I, I can't, agreed, complain. I can't complain too much. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> my dog wants to bomb my podcast. That's okay. Um, totally. <laughs> so like my, thanks so much for this. I found it really informative. I think it's really, um, awesome research. What are your next step for next steps for this? Do you plan on, uh, formalizing this program, testing it on, it sounds like you're already testing it on a larger scale. Um, what, what do yeah. you, what are your plans for the future? Yeah. The next year and uh, the next two years, we're scaling it up. So we're, uh, we're still recruiting patients the next two years. Uh, and we will, we have also designed two additional components of PNP, uh, which is a therapeutic maintenance group for people that have gone through the first PNP program so they can work on habits and life skills and maintaining factors in life, uh, such as stressors. And then we also have uh, this um, uh, uh, body image group for patients with um, uh, really difficulties with the uh, body image which is hindering their recovery. So instead of uh, using uh, uh, psychotherapy, we're using the, the uh, body in treatment. So we're uh, testing that out. Um, so I have a PhD student um, exploring how we can use uh, uh, body image group in binge eating treatment, uh, especially focusing on on stigma and the you know pervasive effects on the body image, and also we're uh, trying to do a fidelity study and and um, we're planning setting up uh, uh, teaching other clinics, both obesity clinics and ED clinics, to uh, to deliver the treatment in the following years. Fantastic PNP people need people. 
Yes. I love that. It's a, it's a great name. Um, thank you so much, Trina. This was really great and interesting. Um, and I look, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm glad we were able to connect and make it work with the time difference. Um, true. How are you guys doing over there? Right. With the pandemic? Actually, we're really hopeful because tomorrow we're having, uh, the government, uh, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, loosening up the restrictions. Oh. Okay. Uh, yeah, because our healthcare systems aren't really, uh, uh, what do you say? Overloaded. Overwhelmed. The yeah. Overwhelmed. No. So, um, I I'm hoping that we are getting back to, um, you know, a new normal. How yeah. about you? What state are you in? New York. I'm in New York city. Yeah. So, so that's probably more restrictive yet. Yeah. Still. <laughs> yeah. That's one way to put we're, um, we're really, um, yeah. I mean, we have the vaccine passport. Um, so you need to show that to get into restaurants and stuff. Um, and some, I go to the Irish theater all the time and now they're, um, mandating the booster to get in uh, as well, which some people are doing. Um, I don't know how many theaters are doing it, but it doesn't look like the vaccine passport is going to get lifted anytime soon. Um, but I think it's taking. Is it, is it, is it working? Like the, do you <gasps> think it has an effect? That's a really interesting question. Cause there's so many angles of looking at yeah, you know, the vaccine passport. I mean, Here's the thing I think that I think maybe in the beginning it, it caused an uptake in vaccination rates because people wanted to go to a restaurant or go to a, a bar or a gym. Um, so they just did it out of out of that to just have some kind of social life. But I think now and, and I think this is why we're seeing countries like Israel debate this. I think today even um, or maybe it's tomorrow. Um, does it make sense now to have these vaccine passports when we see that they're the vaccines um may not stop the transmission mm. so right so do we still have it because of that you know yes they continue to the data i've seen anyways continues to reduce death and hospitalizations um but if you can't stop that transmission and because there have there's still that upset in in functioning right if somebody tests yeah. positive even if they're vaccinated they can't go to work and you have to like rearrange schedules so there is that element. And I don't think we've figured out yet how to, how to do that. Um, it's definitely taken a toll, I think on tourism. Um, uh, and lots of people still want to work remotely because they've figured out that they're able to do that and save on overhead. And I know like our elected officials want people to come back to the city to help fuel the economy. Um, but lots of places have closed. Um, I'm sh I don't know how it is there, but yeah, I think your economy has, you know, because we're we're such a we have such a different uh, way of you know our healthcare is social and everything you know the welfare <laughs> system is very different yeah and the uh, so I think uh, the U.S. has suffered lots more than us you know yeah. we have we haven't had that many death deaths you know so no uh, do you have mask mandates and and vaccine passports or no. We have mask mandates and uh, uh, they're debating now whether to have the vaccine passports or not. And it's, you know, a huge, you know, I think it's very polarized. Yes. I, you know, if, you know, if that's what it takes to open up the society so my kids can play with their friends and do sports, mm. you know, I'm for it. Yeah. But 
on the other hand, you know, people who feel uh, discriminated and people who feel unsafe and if they're really not, you know, helping transmission, it's really hard to make laws. Yes. So, make, yes, it is difficult um, because the variables keep changing too. It's not. Yeah. Like so constant I'm glad set. I'm not the prime minister. That's what I said. I said, we all criticize the person in charge, but I wouldn't want that job. <laughs> no, there's so many variables to, you know, consider. I don't, you know, you yeah. just have to make a decision. It's public health. You can't make everybody yeah. happy. And no, you have to no, find, no, no. I always tell people that you have to find an equilibrium that works. Uh, yeah. You know, we're all sort of surrounded by people like who think like us and stuff. And then, you know, you work maybe in academics or, but like, there's lots of people out there that you're trying to make happy and, and, and have a functioning life. So it's really tough. It's really tough. Yeah, it's, it is true. Yeah. But, but good luck on your podcast. I've listened to some of your episodes. It's really, really good. I'm glad to, thank you know, you. it's like a low budget grassroots episode. Like I just wanted to try to bring hot topics and experts and, um, and some of the episodes are more controversial than others. I just try to be really upfront about that, you know, um, in the spirit of having a discussion. Um, but it's hard today. It's yeah, hard I think to- that lifts, you know, the academic debate. You know, we have to lift it. Yeah. 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 Just to kind yeah. of be honest about where we are and, and where we're going. Um, but um, yeah. And so, and, I, and just to kind of make science, you know, just easy to understand, relatable. That was yeah. kind of the goal of it. I started, I started this we want to say two years ago. And then even like during the pandemic, it just started to get bigger and bigger. Now I have PR agents writing me and what? Yeah, this is hysterical. I'm like, I live in like a small apartment. I'm in like my sweatshirt right now, as you can see, I don't look that great, but um, (laughs) (laughs) you look great, (laughs) (laughs) but it's just like, no, like it's a really low budget podcast. And then all of a sudden I started getting lots and lots of subscribers and interest from these PR agents, agencies, which makes me laugh on one hand. Cause I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> how did that happen? Take but, it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Um, I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'll have my people get back to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but do you, do you do this like as a hobby or is it? Yeah, no, this is completely, I don't get paid for any of this. This is completely a hobby. I just, um, I try to schedule the podcast, you know, around my work schedule. Um, yeah. so my, my day job is I'm a public health consultant, um, yeah. mainly a federal contractor these days. So that's, I'm working on a couple of different projects at that level. Um, but I try to, yeah, I just try to squeeze in the podcast when I can completely just grassroots effort. I just, just thought it was important. Um, I enjoy doing it. I love, like, I love bringing people like you on and end in a different country, which I think is so important too. Cause you know, in America, we're very like America, like, so, you know, and I yeah. just, I'd but like, it's so it's fun to connect, you know, across the globe, you know, 100%. I, yeah. Yeah. So I love America. <laughs> no, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, do. Yeah, I don't know enough about disclosure. Norway. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, America's yeah. great. Um, and, but yeah, I think it's good to, uh, hear other perspectives and approaches to health and, and how, you know, scientists and researchers in other countries are doing things too. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I like that aspect of it and people have been great. Everybody who's come on has been wonderful. Um, it's been a great, great. yeah. And I learn a lot too. So, um, yeah, that's it, you know, optic of it. But uh, I'll have to find your book and read your story. That's really, really interesting. It's a crazy ride, but I think you, you'll you get it. Some people read it and they're like, 
Aaron, are you sure you should have published this book? And I'm like, I, Hey, I was, I love to write. It's like my first love. Um, yeah. And I'm working. I'll, on I'll make sure to find it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Good. I could send you a copy, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's a crazy story, but that's, that's part of art too. A lot of healing and art. I love craziness. Oh, well, then you'll like this book. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um, anyways, Trina, I have to get to work now, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And stay in touch. Yes, oh, for sure. Okay. And, and best you. of luck uh, with you and your family getting out of this pandemic successfully and all of that. And you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining in to this episode of Causes or Cures. A special thank you to Dr. Eichness again for joining us from Norway and sharing her research and expertise with us. I hope you guys stick around. I hope you subscribe. I hope you share this with anybody who you think the information might help. There's a lot of people out there struggling with obesity and binge eating. So share, get the word out. Get the word out. Help a friend. If you're interested, I write a health blog, mostly public health related topics, some wellness type topics at bloomingwellness.com. Most of the topics I focus on are current and I try to write in a way that's relatable and understandable. I try to break down the science because, you know, so much of public health is communication. So I really do try to break it down uh, in a way that's understandable. And if there is ever anything on my blog that you don't understand, you can write me, tell me what it is, and that will help me too, you know, to help me know, like your feedback helps me understand, am I getting through, am I not getting through? And I will try to write it in a different way or make it more understandable. Um, And also on my website, you can sign up for my newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and it covers topics in the blog and topics on the Causes or Cures podcast. And also I include a little section on there, um, medical trivia and medical humor, um, like, or wellnessy humor, just like we, I just have a humor section on there. Cause you know, I, I like to write jokes. You'll see that on my blog too. It's one of my hobbies. I just like to write jokes and illustrate them. Um, hobbies are good, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody should have a hobby. Okay. <laughs> I digress. Um, I do though. I do like to write jokes. That's so funny. I do. Um, guys, enjoy the rest of your day. Do something kind for yourself and others and, uh, take a breather, take some time to reflect and, uh, yeah, go out there and do good things. I believe in you. I know you can do good things. I believe in myself and I know I can do good things too. All right. Talk soon. Bye.